Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spike's editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the EU elections, the abuse of MPs and Asia Bibi. No one expected us to be holding these European elections. After last week's painful encounter with English voters in the local elections, today had to confirm the European Parliament elections will go ahead. The Liberal Democrats have a new slogan, which is bollocks to Brexit. And I think what we've seen is willful betrayal of the greatest democratic exercise in the history of this nation. This week, the government officially confirmed what we've known for a long time, that Britain will take part in the upcoming EU elections on May the 23rd. These elections were never supposed to happen. The Prime Minister promised over a 100 times that the UK would be out of the EU by the 29th of March 2019. Brendan, while these elections obviously represent the government's failure to deliver Brexit, Are there opportunities to be seized here, do you think? Absolutely. Um, I think, firstly, it is important to say that it is absolutely outrageous that we have to vote in these elections. You know, come the 23rd of May, it will be on the cusp of three years since we voted to leave the European Union, which means leaving all the European Union's institutions, including its ridiculous parliament, which pretends to be democratic but isn't. Um, And yet... On the, on the 23rd of May, we will be voting in the European Parliament election. So it is actually outrageous that we're having to do this and a real sign of the government's failure and the political class's determination to prevent us ever from leaving the European un- Union in a meaningful way. But they do represent an opportunity because people are so angry and the the fact that they are being made to take part in these elections is making them even angrier. So I think there's a lot that people can do and they can really signal their um, anger at the political establishment and their desire for something different. So the fact that the Brexit party is coming top in all the polls, I think is incredibly exciting, um, really shows that people are not going to put up with the old crap. Um, The fact that the Remain parties can't get their act together and seem quite divided and seem not to be doing particularly well in public opinion is also exciting. The fact that the Lib Dems have come out with a manifesto that's literally called bollocks to Brexit (laughs) is also really useful because it sums up the hatred, in fact, of the political elite for Brexit and for the people who voted Brexit. They hate it and us so much that they are willing to debase themselves with manifestos that have expletives on them because they just are consumed by contempt for the democratic vote of 2016. So I think the elections will actually clarify a lot of things. I think they will demonstrate how the Brexit betraying mainstream parties are in serious trouble and how the public, for all the fear that has been thrown at us, for all the abuse that has been thrown at us, the public still wants Brexit to happen. I wasn't excited by the prospect of European elections, specifically because of what Brendan said, that I thought, why do we have to do this? I think a lot of people shared that sentiment. But after the local elections and just the sheer delight of seeing the main two parties suffer gave you a kind of taste of the kind of opportunity the European elections could be to really hammer um, Labour and Conservative and really make them pay. It's almost, I'm just treating it like a proxy general election. Mm. It's it's like that. It's a way to send a message to the main parties that they have utterly failed. I mean, I live in London, so <laughs> my vote for the European election is going to matter less than perhaps it might do uh, in other parts of the country. But even just my vote giving a kicking to them is going to be worth something. I think the question of anger is... Um, 
really interesting because I mean I like wake up angry go to bed angry about this (laughs) but isn't it funny that three after three years you are still that angry and Mm. I think actually the the Brexit vote wasn't just an angry vote it was Mm. a vote full of potential and hope and optimism um because you had to have a lot of hope and optimism to to vote for something that everyone was telling you was going to be you know spell the end of uh, your livelihood and your quality of life and everything but i think the residual anger from being screwed over for 3 years is something that politicians haven't quite reckoned with um and if this european election does turn out to be a bit of a bloodbath for the two parties i will be celebrating i think it probably will turn out to be a bloodbath but it's interesting that the kind of excuses or or the uh, kind of getting in early i mean you can imagine if a um remain backing party were top of the polls all the press would be talking about an upcoming, you know, they would be talking about this as if it were a kind of second referendum of, of sorts. But the fact is they're not. They're downplaying significance of of, um, of this vote because it looks like the Brexit party are going to do pretty well. Um, I mean, it's amazing to see the, the main parties running scared from these elections entirely. You know, the, at the time of recording, the Tories haven't even delivered a single speech or, or rally in preparation for this. You know, they're, they're totally absent from the process and they know that they're going to face a, a drubbing. And I can't wait to see that happen, frankly, because people are right to be angry with them. They have, you know, failed and failed again and they've lied and lied again. I think absolutely right. And I think, um, Ella's right that the vote for Brexit itself wasn't, I'm sure there were components of anger, but it was actually a very positive, assertive vote, as you say. And it was basically people saying, uh, we trust ourselves and we trust our own decision making powers and we think we should have a greater say in various areas of public life. So it was very, uh, it was, I've always thought that the Brexit vote was very positive and this idea that it was a negative little Englander anti-foreigner thing never ever rang true at all um, but I think over the past three years people have become increasingly angry but what's interesting is that they're also for the most part sticking with their original decision mm. they're not being dislodged from that even by the politics of fear or the constant abuse or anything else they really are sticking with it which is exciting too I think the one of the on London, uh, Ella mentions London, um, I wouldn't be so sure that your vote would be a waste in London. I, th- I thought the same, but then a poll showed that the Brexit Party is doing better at, at certain points in London than Change UK, yeah. which I thought was really interesting because it's almost like London leavers are the most neglected political constituency in the country. <laughs> I mean, you know, at least people talk about Northern leavers and Welsh leavers. I mean, they're treated like absolute trash by the establishment people at least acknowledge their existence whereas london leavers are just not acknowledged the fact one and a half million people which is two hundred thousand more people than voted for sadiq khan who's the mayor of london um you know a huge number of people in london voted brexit and i think a lot of those people are going to seize this opportunity too to say hello we're still here we're still around one of my favorite things that's happening in the run-up to the EU elections is there's a slow dawning realisation on some Corbynistas that they're not actually the radical wing in British politics. Mm. Owen Jones had a piece in The Guardian making this point and there's been other Guardian pieces basically saying, um, oh my God, look at these Brexit party rallies. This is where the radical sentiment is and we have to kind of re-radicalise ourselves. And I think it's slowly dawning on people, even though they can't admit it, 
that they're actually part of the establishment. And I think that's really going to hit momentum in particular. Momentum is going to realise at some point, if it hasn't already, (laughs) that this Brexit party upsurge, which is winning a lot of interest and support from working class people who want to overthrow the establishment as we know it, they're going to recognise, I think, that this Brexit party upsurge is where the real radical potential lies, whereas they are agitating for remain, agitating for the status quo and agitating to keep politics as it has been for the past 40 years. So um, that, I think, will become another thing that will become clarified as a result of this election that we shouldn't be taking part in, but it's probably pretty good that we are. Yeah. And, you know, even if it takes a while for, you know, momentum and people in the Labour Party to to wake up and realise that, you know, radical sentiment is elsewhere the public know where it is. And we saw this in the, you know, very clearly in the recent local elections where, you know, Labour should have been winning um, seats if they were on track to form the next government. Instead, they lost them. And they were losing heavily in leave areas, you know, everywhere from Darlington to Hartlepool to Middlesbrough. Classic, you know, long-standing Labour heartlands now finally turning their backs on um, the Labour Party because of their equivocation over Brexit. And who can blame them? You know, when you have someone like Lord Adonis who says, "Vote Labour if you want to stop Brexit." And if you're a Labour Labour voter, don't bother. Yeah. Basically. yeah. Um, I got two leaflets through the door the other day, one Labour and one for the Brexit Party. Obviously, Brexit Party is very clear, is exactly what it says on the tin. It's for securing Brexit. I had to read the Labour Party one for a good 30 seconds, which is a lot of <laughs> reading time, until I could find in small print the word Brexit. And listening to the radio this morning on the Today programme, a Labour representative talking about the fact that, you know, when the presenter asked them, is Labour a Remain or a Leave party in these elections? You've got to be clear on that. And they said, no, 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 we're talking about other things. And it's just that... <laughs> it's just the European elections the and European they don't elections. want to talk about Europe. It's crazy, but also it shows just how actually terrified they are. And I think one of the really important things that everyone has to know and no one can forget is how terrified... All politicians are not just of these elections, but of any elections in general. So the general election is something that strikes fear into the heart of every single politician. Um, Look at all these change UKers, former Tiggers, who are not putting themselves up for re-election, even though they've changed their own party. The fact of the matter is most politicians are going to be going into these European elections half-heartedly because they don't really want to do it. That fear of being answered to the public has always been latent. Now they are actually proving that. And... Even more worryingly, which is something that I'm concerned about, is if they do, if Theresa May and Corbyn do somehow manage to find some kind of Frankenstein's monster of a deal and push this through, and then they start arguing and saying that the European election result won't mean anything, so there's not, it's just a kind of a performance. Remember how much these people talk up the importance of voting when it matters for them. Remember how much they talk about the importance of votes at 16, how it doesn't matter who you vote for, that you should vote. Well, it only ma- they only want you to vote when you're going to vote for something they want. You're listening to the Spiked podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give a monthly donation by going to spiked-online.com. 
Metropolitan Police Commissioner Cressida Dick has said that threats and abuse towards members of Parliament are at unprecedented levels. Her Assistant Commissioner Neil Basu told Parliament that Brexit has been a huge driver of abuse. MPs have reported over 600 incidents to the police, an increase of 152% since 2015. Ella, should we be worried about this? No, in short. Not only because what is classified now as a crime, whether it be a hate crime or anything else, is entirely broad. Um, We've seen instances of things being labelled crimes when they are absolutely not a crime. Um, Cressida Dick talks about the fact that crimes are up against MPs, mentions Joe Cox, and essentially is saying anyone with a a strong political opinion is in danger of being criminalised. In fact, they've actually suggested that they're going to pass a new law which would create a specific new electoral offence of intimidating parliamentary candidates uh, and party campaigners during the run-up to an election. I mean, that's crazy. Mm. And and one of the examples they give, Harriet Harman has come out and said, this is absolutely too passive, doesn't go far enough. And the example she gives is the case of Anna Subri, which anyone who listens to this podcast will be familiar with because we've talked about it. All that happened to Anna Subri was she was repeatedly heckled, she was called a Nazi, and she was briefly prevented from entering Westminster. I mean, that means the end of political campaigning. That means that MPs become emperors who don't you get protected from the public. I don't think, uh, you know, if I was a press officer for Parliament at the moment, what I would be saying to MPs is, let's not go down the route of, protect- of insularising yourself even further, a moment mm. when the main criticism against you is that you are unaccountable. I think this is really, really worrying for political discourse because essentially it is driving that wedge between politicians and the public even further. Brendan? Uh, I completely agree. And I think it's one of the most shocking things that Cressida Dick said was when she mentioned the Joe Cox murder and then in the next breath or very soon afterwards mentioned the Anna Subri heckling outside Parliament. Yeah. And you want to say to her, these are not the same things. And the fact that you think they are is terrifying. I mean, firstly, I would like to know what the hell business it is of the police to be talking about politics in the first place. It's mm. none of their business. And I don't. we don't live in a police state yet. And therefore, I do not want the Met Commission telling us what it's acceptable to say and where it's acceptable to protest. So the whole thing was outrageous, but I thought her conflation of the murder of Joe Cox and the protesting against Anna Subri was the height of cynicism and was clearly designed to make any form of political protest suspect and criminal and, um, you know, open to police investigation, which is exactly what has happened and is happening to uh, at least one of the people who protested against Anna Subri or heckled her in Parliament Square. The thing is, this is an attempt to criminalise dissent. Yeah. Uh, that's all it is. It's an attempt to, you know, the arrogance of the political establishment where on the one hand they would conspire to overthrow the largest democratic vote in UK history and then on the other hand um, criminalise or clamp down upon anyone who protests against that. So it's this double whammy of authoritarianism where they are waging war on democracy and limiting our ability to protest. The thing I want to say to politicians and to Cressida Dixie, and she's stuck her nose into this, is um, Parliament Square doesn't belong to you people. Mm. Uh, Just because your offices are nearby, that is meaningless. Parliament Square is a public square. It's the most important public square in the country. It's a place where for centuries, right from the Civil War through to the Chartists, through to the suffragettes who got beaten to a pulp outside Parliament um, in 1910, precisely because they were protesting too angrily, according to the police. Parliament Square, for all those centuries, has been an absolutely essential space for rowdy protest. And we cannot let politicians do anything whatsoever to limit that. And I think even the fact that they want to 
is another indicator that this political class has got to go. When government fears the people, there is liberty. When people fear the government, there is tyranny. And, you know, and there's a part of me that thinks that currently our MPs do not fear us enough because they're still stabbing us in the back over Brexit. Mm. And they still want to, you know, rain down these ridiculous authoritarian restrictions on us. And it's, it's maybe it's worth drawing a comparison here um, between, you know, the situation in the UK and in France, where you have the Gilets jaunes who are protesting week in, week out, um, 26 weeks as of this weekend in a row. And they have of course, attracted their fair share of, um, you know, authoritarian response from the Macron government. But they have extracted enormous concessions, including raises in wages and tax cuts. Why have they managed to extract these concessions? Because the government is afraid of them. It is a good thing for MPs, for ministers, for the government to be afraid of the people. That is something that we should look to extend and further, not restrict also, it's just interesting to note how uh, subjective this definition of MPs and danger and all of it is because, mm. um, and now I'm not trying to say that this is a terrible thing that happened, but in the last few weeks, Tommy Robinson got decked with a milkshake. Mm. Tommy Robinson is running to be a politician of sorts, MEP. It's not exactly like I cried rivers about him being decked with a milkshake, <laughs> but there was no outrage about yeah. it among uh, politicians. Can you imagine if it was Anna Subri that had God. been decked with a milkshake? Yeah. No, but I'm, I'm actually yeah. not you'd joking. Be put in, you'd be put in jail straight away. There would be away. a trial. Yeah, yeah, there would be a trial instantly. And that kind of shows the... Um, level of hypocrisy in it. I mean, I remember, actually, I think I've mentioned it before in this podcast, being um, on a TV programme with a Labour MP who I will not name, who, because I used the word quizzling on air to describe behaviour which was traitorous, Mm. he got up in my face and said that I was, it was like I was doing the same to him what people did to Joe Cox. This was a massive guy up in my face. I mean, the audacity (laughs) of it. I just think they don't quite realise that once you start instituting uh, laws at this point to protect people, what this will mean is a criminalisation of speech. Yeah, because what they're talking about when they say they feel, when MPs say they feel threatened, they mean that they've had some angry emails and angry tweets. They don't mean that someone is, you know, stood outside their house stalking them or anything actually dangerous. Yeah, my example of a run-in with MPs was I was on a podcast once with... um, Anna Subri and Jess Phillips, who are two of the most establishment figures who are most authoritarian when it comes to protests. I know both of them consider themselves non-establishment, which is obviously hilarious. Um, but the point they were making, I, I said that Anna Subri deserves to be protested against because mm. she is stabbing voters in the back. And they said that was like saying a woman who wears a short skirt deserves to be raped. And uh, the thing that shocked me about that was not only... Um, that they were undermining the crime of rape by comparing it to Anna Subri being heckled outside Parliament. But also that really is how they think of themselves. They really do think that someone saying, you've made a political decision that I think is offensive to democracy and therefore you need to be protested against. They think that's the same as a rape threat. So, so if they are this confused about what counts as democratic protest and what counts as a threat, then I don't want these people writing laws or contributing to laws that determine when it's acceptable to shout at a politician when it isn't. That would be an incredibly risky thing to do. And, you know, the Fawcett Society did a petition this week off the back of the Jess Phillips scandal because Carl Benjamin, who's standing for UKIP, has, you know, written some ridiculous things about Jess Phillips and seems a little bit obsessed with her. Um, The Fawcett Society did a petition saying they want to ban anyone who has promoted rape or violence from standing for public office. And you think to yourself, 
well, does that include, include all the MPs who voted to bomb Libya? Mm. Does that include Stella Creasy, who voted in favour of dropping bombs on Syria? You know, why is it, unac- why is it acceptable for those politicians to promote violence? Because yeah. that's how I would consider promoting violence when you are greenlighting the dropping of bombs on countries and, and in the process killing people and giving rise to war zones in which women are at greater risk of being raped than they were previously. Uh, why is that not? The promotion of violence. So the hypocrisy, the double standards, the authoritarianism and the absolute disconnection that these people have from ordinary people and our concerns is really shown up in this whole effort to clamp down on dissent. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Asya Bibi, a Pakistani Christian who was convicted and then acquitted of blasphemy charges, has finally been able to leave Pakistan. Bibi was initially convicted in 2010 and spent years on death row until the Supreme Court of Pakistan quashed her sentence last October. The news of her acquittal sparked riots and protests among religious hardliners, and Bibi had to be kept in a secret location while arrangements were made for her to leave the country. She was denied asylum in Britain, but she's been granted it in Canada. Brendan, what are your thoughts on the Asia BB case? I think it's really incredibly revealing about um, censorship and Islamism and politics more broadly. Um, I think one of the things that I find very interesting is the question of why there hasn't been much Western support for Asia BB. She's a perfect candidate for Western leftists and liberal support. She's very poor. She was a farm worker. Um, She's part of a persecuted minority, Christians in Pakistan. Um, She's a woman. She's non-white. She was jailed for a crime of conscience, in essence, although she was completely stitched up. And as the judges said when they quashed her conviction, it was... um, a complete invention and she had never said the thing that she was supposed to have said which was something insulting about Muhammad um so all those things combined you think you know you ask yourself why isn't she being symbolically voted in as the head of student unions which western yeah. students often do with radical figures why isn't her photo on posters why aren't people making t-shirts of her so it was very strange that that didn't happen and then you think when you dig down It's because many people in the West agree with the Pakistani government that it is wrong to criticise Islam, and particularly that it is wrong to mock Muhammad. You know, over the past few years, while Ezio Bibi was rotting in jail, a woman in Austria was uh, convicted because she called Muhammad a paedophile. We know that there are laws across Europe which um, restrict people's ability to be supposedly Islamophobic. We know that anyone who criticises the hijab or the Quran too harshly will might be blacklisted from British universities and so on. So this is the really perverse thing. There is a commonality between Western liberals' desire to clamp down on so-called Islamophobia and theot- theocratic states' desire to clamp down on blasphemy. So when you when you read that she couldn't even come to britain because british officials were worried that some members of the pakistani community here might try to attack her you realize that we have compromised too much on freedom of conscience and freedom of speech and um we in a different way and a less violent way we do enforce some similar rules to those that are enforced in pakistan ella there's a great interview on Spiked with Wilson Chowdhury from the British Pakistani Christian Association, which 
um, when I read it, you, you realise things that you sort of always knew, but you didn't quite know how explicit it was. And he talks about the fact that the reason why they wouldn't, um, British officials wouldn't countenance the idea of her coming here was for a large part because they were scared that the British embassy in Pakistan was going to get attacked. Mm. I mean, that is so shockingly gutless. It's just insane to say that they would be <laughs> that cowed by extremists. Yeah. And the fact is that, as Brendan says, this is essentially at the heart of it, is the utter fear of a backlash for talking about... We're not even just talking about Islam, we're talking about radical Islamism. Mm. I mean, the idea... This isn't just simply, um, you know... It's not Islamophobia. It's not a kind of persecution of Muslims that's happening. This is something out of a horror film. You know, the idea that you would be put in jail for saying something rude about Muhammad while you were, you know, arguing over a cup of water. That's what happened to her. Yeah. It's that like you couldn't write a worse tale in a true crime story. And yet people are so terrified about talking about it. We've lost the ability to criticise religion in this country. And it's it's something that I've always taken as a given. You know, I got brought up a Catholic and yet I'm, you know, I'm completely fine with criticising religion and, you know, actually Christians get a hard time. You know, there's there's TV shows mocking them, whether it be Father Ted or anything else. We've got sort of quite a liberal, positive ability to take the piss out of that side of religion. But when it comes to Islam, it's we're utterly incapable of doing it. And it's because of a fear, not just of offence, but also a fear of... Uh, consequence that if you do this then there will necessarily be violence and that means that that religion and that ideology has won it's got a grip on the world and I think it's time to actually have some bravery yeah and I'm not even sure it's just fear of violence it's just sort of a lot of the time it's just fear of social consequences you know among especially among liberals I mean it's made, it's made me think of the incident at the Saatchi gallery at the mm. weekend where um, this painting has been essentially covered up they've basically put a burqa on it, if you want to call it that, because two Muslims complained about it to the gallery. Fair enough, people don't like their religion being insulted and they're going to complain. But the right response to that is to say, so what? This mm. is the West. We should be free to criticise Islam or we should be free to um, experiment with um, Islamic symbols in our art and things like that. That's that's the way it is. But it, it, So it, I, I don't even necessarily see it as... Um, Obviously, hardline Islamism is a problem in Pakistan, but it's not so much that Islam is a problem in Britain. It's just that liberals, mm. supposed liberals, are unable to stand up for Western values and free speech. Yeah, and the real problem here is that they always say that too much freedom of speech in relation to Islam in particular could cause violence, right? Mm. That's what they think the consequence will be because people will see a shocking image of Muhammad and go mad. But actually, it's censorship that causes violence. Yeah. And it is censorship of so-called Islamophobia that stokes up violence. And and I think what's... Because what censorship does, censorship um, ring fences certain ideas or ideologies from any kind of ridicule or commentary or questioning, which makes the adherents of those ideologies or religions think that their religion is perfect beyond rebuke. And anyone who criticises it obviously deserves to be punished and therefore they will go out and punish them. So actually censorship gives a licence to intolerant people to attack those who criticise their religion. So I, I, I would always make the argument that it isn't freedom of speech that causes violence. Freedom of speech is the solution to violence and to difficulties and tensions and everything else. It's censorship because censorship gives people the very wrong-headed idea that anyone who criticises them or their way of life deserves to be punished. And uh, the, that's why what the Saatchi Gallery did was so dangerous, because it fed into that narrative. It should have said, these are our paintings, we're not covering them up, and you can come and look at them or not look at them, however you choose. 
Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, to find more great Spike content or to give us a donation, just go to spiked-online.com.